This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Creature abilities and the player interface. Stolen passports. William S. Burroughs. And the Mary Celeste. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, and the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy what was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash p 8 That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> The rattling of dice of many different sizes and sides, the crunching of Doritos, the feel of green shag carpet under our feet, or at least it's green now, tell us that we've entered the Gaming Hut, and on the Gaming Hut there are a variety of bestial miniatures deployed on the table. Robin, you have creatures on your mind. What's your creature-related thought for the day? So specifically my creature-related thought is about the extent to which all of the groovy fa fancy abilities that we give to creatures in various games and not just f20 games but other games in which combat matters and what different creatures do matter the extent to which those actually reach player awareness whether they pierce the interface between the gm and the players and i noticed this first of all while running some 13th age a while back in that uh, very cleverly uh, in a couple of the creature descriptions, uh, Rob and Jonathan tell you to make sure that you inform the players 
that a creature has a certain ability so they can react to it appropriately. So there's a thug character, I forget what the exact name of the, the creature is, but his uh, damage goes up if he misses. So uh, eventually he's going to hit, and when he hits, the more times he's missed you, the bigger the wallet that is. And uh, you are instructed to inform the players that this is an option so that they can, you know, all gang up on him or avoid him or, or whatever it is that they want to do. In 13th Age, there's a lot of creatures that do their special thing on a particular role. Sometimes it's an even role, sometimes it's a natural 16 plus. And I created some 13th Age creatures that, you know, that I described accordingly in case the use of their ability came up. So there's these uh, creatures in an upcoming ability that have these uh, squids that they throw at you. Mm -hmm. I hate those guys. Yeah, they're, they're really terrible. And when I ran the encounter, it just so happened that all of those creatures rolled poorly. So even though it set up what the creatures could possibly do, the players were, uh, you know, confronted with this possibility, but it never paid off. It's like a bit of exposition in a story. You know, if you had a movie where the guy hauls out his big buzzsaw hand and there's a minute montage of his preparing his, his buzzsaw hand and then never uses it in the fight against the good guys. Yes, Chekhov's squid throwing. Right. And so I modified that to, you know, change the name of the ability to they want to know what the squid does and uh, made sure that at least in one instance, even if they roll poorly, they get to use the special ability once because otherwise you're setting up something that doesn't pay off. And so the general question then becomes, uh, how often are we giving creatures all of these uh, special abilities without the players really being able to tell the difference? What do players take away from the average fight and how much does it relate to those abilities? And should every creature, you know, make sure that it uses its cool ability at, at least once? And should you balance the creatures uh, assuming that they get to use their big cool thing once? Because otherwise that doesn't serve the purpose of adding a variety and distinction to that fight. Well, I think that, I mean, we begin with like a huge philosophical difference just sort of assumed right at the beginning. In 13th Age, you're supposed to sort of, you know, set it up and explain to the players that, yes, the squid-throwing monster exists and it throws squids and blah, 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 or that this other you know, wallopy creature, you know, if it, no matter how many times it misses, it's, you know, that's just adding up points for its wallop. Back in the olden days, part of the fun of having a monster manual that someone didn't have was you got to surprise them with a new creature and give them a thing that they had no idea what it was. So they see, I mean, the first people to see a giant black Panther with sort of sparkly coruscating electrical energy coming off of it. They didn't know what they were facing. They didn't know that was a displacer beast. They might've thought that was a, a black dragon Panther. They might've thought it was a lightning uh, leopard. Who knows what it was? It could have been anything. And I think that that is, so much more important than allowing the players to prepare their tacticals that I sort of, I, I question the whole premise that if you've got a, a goblin that's sitting there with a, a big basket full of squid and he's throwing them at you and they miss, that's even better than if he's throwing them at you and they hit and they do a thing and now you're like, oh, well, thank God it only, you know, sucks your, your, your breath out for 10 dike for consciousness damage or whatever, right? I mean, if the squid misses and it explodes with a giant cloud of ink and and um, uh, waves his little tent, and you have no idea what it could do. It could crawl down inside you. It could reach up and take over your mind. You don't know what that squid does, and I think it's much more interesting to never know what the squid does, and, you know, maybe you 
you plan it out. We're going to capture a basket of those squid, and we're going to take them to the alchemist to get analyzed. I mean, that's that becomes a mystery to be solved, and it should never, I would think, just be a, well, it's time to encounter the monster that throws squid, which you know what it does, unless you've rolled on some sort of, you know, background knowledge, and you make it a big deal, and you say, as a ranger, you've faced squid-throwing goblins before, and you know that while scary-looking, all they really do is suck your breath out. Well, I, I would say that they, the players should discover what it is that the squid does, and they should discover it by having the squid do something to them. Yeah, ideally. And that's why you would want to engineer the, the stats so that you make sure that if there's a really cool ability... That, you know, it's the, this is the monster version of Anton Chekhov's gun in the drawer mm-hmm. in the first act, right? That you, uh, if the players encounter a displacer beast for the first time and all they know is it's a weird sort of panthery thing, but it doesn't do any displacing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. If it doesn't do the thing a displacer beast is supposed to do, which is a phase all around and become challenging, then that ability hasn't made it through to the player inter- interface. The players aren't aware of what's cool about it. And they might create a mythology around what it could have possibly done. But if you have, you know, six, seven, eight cool new creatures that don't actually ever do anything cool, after a while, the distinctiveness of that starts to fade and they all become essentially encounters with different skinned generic monsters that are just their stats. Another sort of related question is the extent to which can you actually make an encounter interesting just by fiddling with the numbers, right? If you, uh, is it boring to have a 13th age encounter where they're all first level, or is it more interesting to have a couple of them second level and a couple third, or do players actually see the fine gradations in the math because 13th age is a D20 game and so it's very uh, granular? Do they actually even, you know, notice the difference on that sort of uh, uh, numbers level? So I, I guess what I'm suggesting is just that as you try to make these fights interesting, uh, you want to make sure that if you are relying on special abilities to make the fight interesting, make sure they somehow impress themselves upon the players. And if indeed they impress themselves on the players by not actually manifesting, but just creating enough curiosity on their part that they want to go off to the alchemist, that's great. But are they going to do that seven, eight, nine times in a row? Is that something you can rely on happening and rely on successfully conjuring up? But are the monsters going to fail that roll seven, eight, nine times in a, in a row? I mean, most uh, monsters, for example, in, in D&D, they can automatically, I mean, their, their abilities are free use, or at least free use once per battle, right? I mean, the dragon doesn't have to roll to make his lightning breath, he just makes his lightning breath, and then he then he's done it. And the question that the GM usually has is, I'm saving this lightning breath because you can only make one of them per battle if he's a dragon of a certain size. Uh, so you want to use it tactically when the paladin and the cleric are like tightly bunched up together. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, at some level, the old school answer is let the dice, you know, fall where they may. And if the displacer beast gets, you know, somehow surprised and never gets to displace, although again, he doesn't displace on a roll, he just displaces whenever the hell he wants to. You know, that's just that's just the the breaks of the dice, and then the next time, you know, the um uh, the the squid troll is going to use he's going to roll a lot of twenties, and we're going to have a lot of perfect hits with squid. And I I think that you know you can certainly say the last couple of fights have been a little boring and unflavory. I'm going to flavor it up by giving this one you know this next orc 
uh, a coatl feather as a magic item, and so he can you know shoot death rainbows or whatever, and you and that's just a way to you know spark up a fight. But you'd be doing that with any fight. You'd be doing that in any genre. You'd be doing it in Call of Cthulhu after you know the ninth or tenth bust up of the cultists, and it's like, wow, guys in robes with daggers. That's a tactical challenge we've never faced before. So, you know, you give the guys in robes Tommy guns, or you give the guys in robes, you know, make them the fingers on the hand of some monstrous being that's, you know, doing a puppet show for its own amusement. Whatever it is, uh, you know, changing up the fight has to happen on a lot of different levels. I think that when you talk about, you know, do players, are players sensitive to the fine gradations? I know for a fact, or at least in my experience, players are super sensitive to the fine gradations and the number of hit points the bad guys have. So... The number of times, you know, I've heard my players say, we're going to concentrate our fight on the tough-looking orc or on the hobgoblin instead of the goblins or on the giant ant instead of the sturges, whatever it is, right, that they've, they're recognizing different tactical threats because those tactical threats very much impress themselves on them, if only in the amount of damage the thing can take. I mean, that was even true in Call of Cthulhu, where I would describe someone as being the obviously tough-looking thug bodyguard, and they'd say, well, we're going to go after him. Uh, not, you know, the the weedy-looking guy. And, of course, the weedy-looking guy is always the sorcerer, so that's an interesting sort of question. Right. The default that my players usually go to in deciding who to hit is who looks the most hurt. Um, and so they're reacting entirely to the defensive capabilities of the enemies. And if you want to make the offensive capabilities more interesting, one way to do it certainly is to say, well, he zapped you once in this uh, early exchange, and it looks like he's going to be able to power up eventually and do it again. And so that then gives you a trade-off. So, well, do I attack the most wounded guy and take him out first, or do I want to take out uh, this guy who is powering up for another of those nasty attacks? And so if the players are always choosing their attacks on the same basis, uh, and if that basis is what their perceived hit points are in your case, or how close they are to being knocked out, which I guess is sort of the opposite of that in a way, as as my group tends to do, that that is just sort of one standard go-to that they have. And if you give them an either-or choice uh, with a trade-off, that, again, seems to be something that would give that particular encounter more distinction. One of the reasons I've been thinking about this is that I've, as I've been playtesting uh, Feng Shui, uh, for the first little while, I was not at the point in my design process where I had the enemy stats and enemy special abilities. And for five, six, seven sessions, I was just running fights where the characters just had stats and nothing uh, special on top of that. And those were perfectly entertaining, super fun, distinctive fights. And they were all made distinctive by the dramatic situation and by the location, because that's the thing that you're encouraged to do in Feng Shui is to think up cool things that your characters can be doing and describe them vividly as you make your uh, attacks, uh, hopefully after you've rolled so you don't blow a really cool description. And so, again, the challenge is to make each fight memorable and distinctive, but there uh, it turned out that the value of all of these special abilities in doing that was uh, much lower than one might traditionally think, and that simply moving it to a new set that they could then destroy was what did the trick in terms of um, making that a very specific uh, fight that they'll be able to recall later, as opposed to, you know, random fight with X amount of mooks in generic location. 
Yeah, I mean, we, we've gone around this before talking about, you know, providing fights with story currency, providing fights with social currency, providing fights with meeting, uh, you know, st- uh, staging the fights, you know, to, um, uh, to, to, to flow naturally into a story, making the fights seem like, you know, games in the, in the March Madness, whatever it is. And that's obviously got to be one of your all-time concerns if you're running anything, you know, even if it's not F20, even if it's a game that, like Call of Cthulhu, still has a, a fighty aspect to it is making those fights different enough that they're a memory as opposed to a... And then we had to fight some guys, and then the interesting part of the adventure started again. Because if, for gosh sakes, if the fight isn't interesting, I think you've lost half the battle there already. So it might be an interesting exercise, particularly in F20 games, to kind of review each fight at the end of the session and ask yourself if it was engaging, and hopefully it was, why was it engaging, and how much of that memorable afterglow of battle has anything at all to do with the complicated, distinctive special abilities that you gave your creatures. And it may well be that the more tactical the game is, the more it's about, uh, okay, I'm in this square and that guy's adjacent to me. And uh, the more positional tactics are, the more memorable special abilities are because they hook into that and they make you make uh, sort of movement decisions as you move your pieces around the game board, i.e. your miniatures around the battle mat. But if you're sort of in the in-between zone, let's say 13th Age or a lot of other games are, and you spent a lot of time designing all of these cool abilities and they didn't make any difference, they didn't register to the players, you might want to ask yourself, well, maybe I can skip all that and spend my time thinking about the things that actually did make the fights memorable, whatever those were. And I think we've adequately uh, battled each other on this and tested each other's special abilities. I think we both rolled in excess of 16, and it's time to move on to the next segment. Hey, Ken, guess what project touted here on the podcast is now crowdfunding on Indiegogo? I don't have to guess. I can see here in the script that it's my pals at Phoenix. As in Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. When typing it into your search engine of choice, remember that all right-thinking persons and Swedes spell it F-E-N-I-X. Uh, And, of course, you don't mean to make a distinction between those two things, but you can tell that it addresses the right-thinking demographic because among its contributors is elliptonic raconteur Kenneth Height. Hop aboard the Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch Goals expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves. Golden vampires. And the frost-caked western once upon a time in the north. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, singing spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. On Indiegogo until April 3rd, 2014. So as we record this segment, it turns out that uh, Malaysian Flight MH370, uh, despite all of the weird rumors during the period of time in which uh, the wreckage had not yet been found, were floating about and... uh, you got to the point where even CNN anchors were asking if it could possibly be the supernatural at work. It turns out that, in fact, what we have on our hands is a terrible, uh, typical aviation disaster story without necessarily that much remarkable to it. But in the period of suspension, during the long break between the 
plane disappearing and the wreckage being found, we had an opportunity to think about all these things that turned out to be completely tangential to the story. And I think that looking at some of these uh, tangential points is probably the way that we want to recognize it here on the podcast. And one of the things that this opened up for me takes us into the Tradecraft hut with its pat down and its retinal scan. And once we're inside the hut, we're going to look at the thriving international trade in stolen passports. Because if you'll recall from the early days of the story, it was thought that the fact that a couple of the travelers were traveling on stolen passports probably indicated a terrorist dimension to the story, which it doesn't look like that has anything to do with anything. Those passengers, it looks like we're just attempting to uh, become undocumented immigrants in Germany. But it turns out that the trade in stolen passports is quite a big business, and it's a business centered in Thailand. There's about 20 different groups that are engaged in this. It's sort of centered in Phuket. So listeners, if any of you are planning to go to Phuket, especially if you're planning to rent a bike or a motorcycle and hand over your passport as a collateral, you should know that you are probably just dealing with a front operation to steal your passport. And uh, if you wanted to, you could probably steal that motorbike and they would still make a profit. European passports uh, and American passports go for a uh, thousand to fifteen hundred on the black market and Canadian passports go for three grand. Three grand. Wow. Is it is it because um uh, you have like the, the foil activated uh, chase content? Is that what happens with Canadian passports? Uh, yeah, they're, they're extra collectible. Right. Some of them have Pokemons in them. Right. I think the deal is that Canada, because it has such a wide ethnic profile that you can probably find, uh, you know, it could be believable that you could be from anyone in the anywhere in the world and be a Canadian citizen. And, maybe. Or, I mean, America's ethnic profile is, if anything, wider than Canada's, but I guess the fact that there's going to be 10 times as many American passports as Canadian, well, maybe not 10, because uh, uh, like two-thirds of Americans don't necessarily have passports, but still, it's going to be like five times as many American passports as Canadian maybe means that the supply and demand. I think also, is it easier to get into England if you've got a Canadian passport than an American passport? Because it might be that Canada's a twofer, right? You get into the EU and to America with greater ease with a Canadian passport, whereas if you have an American passport, the Europeans will uh, make you stand in the long line, and if you have a, a, a European passport, vice versa. Is that your experience of getting into Europe, that it's a hassle? Well, you don't get to stand in the EU citizen's line, which is... Well, you don't get to stand in the EU citizen's yeah, line. Yeah, I, I didn't know if, either, if Canada but... had a special relationship with uh, Her Majesty the Queen, so if you flew into London, you got to stand in a different line from me. It's the same line, and uh, compared to getting through U.S. customs, it's uh, weirdly easy-peasy. Yeah. <laughs> So I, d I don't know if that's a, a thing or not, but at any rate, it may just be that, you know, everybody thinks Canadians are nice and, and we attract uh, less suspicion than, than Americans or, or whatever. But it was also interesting where the uh, origin of this trade came from. It started in the 80s where uh, gangs in Thailand were stealing passports merely as an ancillary measure in order to be able to cash the traveler's checks that they were stealing at the same time. because. <laughs> Remember when traveler's checks were a thing way back in our dinosaur days? And so if you had traveler's checks, you needed to show your passport to cash them, and they started stealing the passports with the traveler's checks, and now there are no traveler's checks, but sale of passports is a huge thing. And these gangs, you would think, actually, that international uh, security agencies would really want to go to Phuket and target these gangs because they are wired into Al-Qaeda, they're uh, wired into... Uh, Narcotics and human trafficking. The Lashkar... Uh, Lashkari Taiba, the guys in India. Yeah, yeah they're tied, tied into them, and, you know, the whole idea of there being an international network of uh, otherwise 
unassociated terrorists who are working together isn't a thing, but if you, you can tie them all through this passport theft industry. And so that, I think, raises interesting uh, plot lines in terms of your uh, characters in an espionage game and uh, where they're getting their uh, stolen passports from and uh, how easy it is to... Uh, these organizations have big lab setups and they steal so many passports that what you do is you say, well, I'm looking for a passport for a 35-year-old uh, blonde guy with you know big ears. And then they just look through the files and then they take the one that they've got off the rack. That's how many... Uh, passports they've managed to steal. Yeah, according to Interpol, there are 40 million passports have been stolen in like the last uh, dozen years or so, this millennium, let's say. And that's, I mean, interesting thing about the uh, the MH370 uh, angle was that once we found out that uh, Crossfingers, it was only a terrible tragedy as opposed to a terrorist, a terrible tragedy, is that that just means that people are at any random airport up to, you know, maybe two to half a dozen of the people on there might be traveling on stolen passports that it's so common you can literally take a random sample and there's going to be a couple of guys, in this case, guys uh, with an Iranian connection with stolen passports. And so the the notion that this is apparently a thing that always happens on planes should be a little more terrifying just because, you know, you'd certainly hope that the guy's a nice, respectable drug dealer, but... There's no guarantee, right? He, he could be up to all manner of uh, nefarity that involves your, your flight. And the interesting thing is that uh, Interpol, of course, said that, you know, no one, no one checked these passports onto this flight against the Interpol database of stolen passports. But the interesting thing is no one ever does it. I mean, the United States does it more than most, but even we still don't, you know, don't sign up to this database and say, you know, just run all the names on a flight through it and, you know, spit them back out the other side. And... You, you kind of have to wonder what on earth people, you know, think they're doing with all this big data if they're not using this quite obvious list of, you know, big red flag data to begin with. It, it seems there, there was a big outcry that led to the creation of the Interpol database and nobody yeah. misses it. So I guess if you're playing a character who's trying to get on a plane, your assumption as a player is, oh, man, that's going to be really difficult with a stolen passport. Oh, nope, no, not, not so, so much. much. So GMs assign a low difficulty to that. And in fact, uh, there was a crash of an Indian plane uh, not so long ago, and everybody on the flight died, and there was no question of any terrorism. But 10% of the people on that flight had stolen yeah. passports. I, I imagine that there are certain airlines or certain airports where your, your numbers go up or down, because again, I, I imagine that a good chunk of them are just people who are trying to, as you suggest, immigrate illegally to somewhere. And, you know, I've got no particular beef with those guys. But, uh, yeah, you, you really would rather... Make sure that uh, everyone on the flight is who they say they are, just as sort of a, a, a bare minimum in these days of, of parlous international brouhaha. I think that the, um, I mean, first of all, the fact that we got 40 million of these things lying around, your, your notion that uh, you can use the Phuket passport trade as a sort of universal joint to crack into any organized crime or terrorist organization around the world um, is another excellent example. I, I think that we can also look at the fact that a lot of, you know, governments basically make a business out of counterfeiting passports. North Korea, of course, is famously, you know, uh, around, uh, exists pretty much entirely to counterfeit, you know, U.S. $100 bills and uh, and sell plutonium. But I suspect they do a land office business in South Korean and probably um, uh, Japanese passports as well, because the Lord knows they've got plenty of them to look at, and they've got teams of forgers who are, who are experts. So I, I, I don't know if, you know, we have the data to say that, a larger percentage of South Korean passports or a larger percentage of Japanese or maybe Vietnamese passports 
are dodgy because of the North Koreans, or maybe the North Koreans because they are so very, very fond of us. You know, they, they go out of their way to do a bunch of counterfeit American passports. But in addition to these 40 million stolen, there's got to be some non-trivial number of, of actually forged ones. And that even assumes that the guys who work for the, you know, uh, GRU or MI6 turn in their forged passports at the end of the day like they're supposed to. And uh, one of the other big conduits for stolen passports is from Spain, uh, because uh, people from England holiday in Spain all the time, and there's a huge number of British passports stolen in Spain, and then shipped to Thailand. So not all of the stolen passports sold through this Thai network uh, are stolen in Thailand, that there's a whole, you know, flow of these passports around the world. And occasionally, you know, people will be caught at airports or with uh, hidey holes or whatever, and they'll have like 17 passports on them. So what what does this uh, uh, suggest that we haven't covered then for uh, uh, playing Knights Black Agents or other uh, espionage games? Certainly, if you want to have your if your characters have to acquire a whole bunch of passports, they could go to Phuket and have uh, things happen to them there. They could uh, acquire to uh, courier a bunch of fa- false passports from one place to another as uh, favor in kind for some other service that they want. Yeah, I, th- I think that, first of all, I'm kind of surprised there isn't a branch office in, in, in Spain or in Ceuta in North Africa, because uh, right across from Spain, because there's so many... Uh, people who want to get into Spain from Africa that you'd think that they'd just maintain a, a, a maybe just all the all the African and North African looking passports stay in 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 a branch office and all the rest of them go to uh, go, go to Thailand. But I, I'm I'm amazed that you'd have to sort of um, uh, order your your guy who looks like a Nigerian passport from Thailand instead of from you know a, a local dealer. Uh, that seems inefficient. Um, I think that the other thing that you can say in terms of a Knights Black Agents type game is that maybe set it up that the player characters, I mean, player characters traditionally are like beating up a bunch of guys and leaving them unconscious, that it might be a, a standard practice that they gather up all these passports and then, you know, put them in an env- a big envelope and mail them off to Thailand. And then 10 days later, they get fake passports that match their recorded characteristics that it's like a, you know, used bookstore. You, you take in 10 and you bring out two type of deal. So, and I guess, you know, fantasy adventurers should be going to the dungeon and breaking down doors, beating up the orcs and taking their travel documents. Taking their travel. Well, I, I think in fantasy uh, adventures, you've either got like a, like a, like a talisman from the, from the local ruler that lets you wander around like the Mongols used to have, or there's some magical uh, means of telling who you are. I mean, I assume that the necromancer checks the Interpol database a lot more often than, you know, <laughs> Than the Malaysians do. Necromancers are much more efficient. <laughs> and uh, before we get our own travel documents and head out of this segment, one last point to make is that this trade in stolen passports is very cosmopolitan, that the uh, couple of the rings were busted up recently, and both of them were led by uh, Pakistani nationals. So uh, it's not necessarily a Thai-controlled organization all the way up the hierarchy, but it really is sort of a... Uh, uh, sort of an inverse globalism of, of crime that's going on. South, South Asian uh, gangs, uh, a lot of their leaders work out of Thailand because obviously you have the advantage of not being where the Indian police can come get you. But there's such a huge trade now between India and Southeast Asia in terms of tourism and in terms of economics that you can be an Indian businessman in Bangkok and draw no more attention than if you are a Indian businessman in you know San Francisco or, or New York City. Or maybe even less, because the, uh, I mean, the, the, there's a large number of, of Indian organized crime rings that are run out of Thailand by Indian or Pakistani nationals. It's, it's a big, it's a big deal. So that, that connection does not 
uh, surprise me at all. Well, I sense that well, this discussion is wanting to go off in various different directions without proper documentation. So it's time to have it step aside and have it talk to an officer as we move on to our third segment. Time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jim Crocker asks Ken and Robin, with the recent 100th anniversary of William S. Burroughs' birth in mind, any chance of a piece on using his writing as a jumping-off point for post-war weirdness in RPGs? I suspect he's like the Velvet Underground in that not a ton of people have actually read much of him, but everyone who did went on to become Grant Morrison. So how does his queer, drug-induced beat paranoia fit into horror-weird gaming? Uh, Robin, do you have a, a first jump? Are you going to be the first one to say over the edge, or should I be the first one to say over the edge? Well, you should say that, because what I'm going to say is, thanks for a continent to despoil and poison. Thanks for Indians to provide a modicum of challenge and danger. Thanks for vast herds of bison to kill and skin, leaving the carcasses to rot. This is the only opportunity I have to do my William S. Burroughs impression. Okay, so you wanted to jump right on his, his Thanksgiving prayer there? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that, that that's fair enough. Yeah, so uh, over the edge, I, in a way, uh, owe a lot of my role-playing game career indirectly to uh, Bill Burroughs. Uh, I read his novels and uh, the more accessible early book Naked Lunch and the even more accessible later 80s trilogy, which we can... Uh, talk about in a bit, and uh, wrote an article about how one might theoretically do a William S. Burroughs role-playing game. And uh, Jonathan Tweet, a young, bright-eyed uh, Ars Magica designer that he was at the time, looked at that and decided to use that uh, as the basis after going off and reading Burroughs and digging him as well, as a basis for an unpublishable role-playing game, which, of course, became Over the Edge, and my uh, some things that I wrote for Jonathan wound up in that book. And uh, helped uh, get me into the uh, gaming biz. So, uh, clearly, yes, I think there are practical applications for William S. Burroughs in role-playing games. <laughs> well, again, I mean, if <laughs> practical is still yet to be seen, but certainly there are plenty of exciting and fun and, and, uh, and thrilling applications for William S. Burroughs in role-playing games. I did not know that you had turned Tweet onto Burroughs. I think that that, that alone is, is uh, worthy of a gold star in your, in your, in your chat book. I, I think that I should also mention at this point that a good deal of my, uh, I assume, forthcoming GURPS Horror the Madness dossier, uh, which began as a three-page insert in GURPS Horror 3rd Edition, is also inspired by Burroughs, especially the part, his notion that, um, uh, or not his notion, but his sort of apothem, that uh, language is a virus, uh, very much resonated with me. And that, and that whole uh, question of what you see and read and hear is not necessarily remotely congruent to what you know, is actually going on either behind the scenes or right in front of your face because you've got a mask of words. I, of course, also come back to Burroughs through his influences, through things like Over the Edge, through things like Grant Morrison. So every time I'm reading something and or back through the Illuminati trilogy, which is, I think, where I first ran into Burroughs and then went on and, and read a bunch of Burroughs to, uh, to sort of um, uh, understand some of the jokes in that. So every now and again, I'll, I'll be reading something and it will lead me back around to Burroughs and that will be 
my sign to try and take another climb up uh, the walls of the Cities of the Red Knight or finish the Nova Trilogy for once and for all, that kind of thing. Right. So, uh, and other people who's influenced, uh, obviously, David Cronenberg, who uh, uh, all of his early stuff is very Barosian, and, uh, and of course, he is the one who uh, took a shot at filming the unfilmable uh, Naked Lunch, which is fun. But speaking as one straight Torontonian, uh, it's definitely a straight Torontonian's take <laughs> on uh, Naked Lunch. And also Michael Moorcock, the Jerry Cornelius yes. uh, novels, uh, very much use... Uh, Burroughs uh, methodology uh, and try to import them into a science fiction reality hopping uh, spy series, for example. So there's certainly, uh, as Jim's question suggests, a lot of people who were inspired by him. Um, so if you want to tackle Burroughs, uh, Naked Lunch is the masterpiece, I think, still. And what it is is sort of a fusion of a very harrowing, down and dirty account of what it is like to be a heroin addict in the 40s and 50s, which then increasingly morphs into this hallucinatory dream realm into which Burroughs incorporates his routines, these uh, sort of verbal, kind of almost sort of written satirical skits, uh, which are uh, highly scatological and and freaky, uh, which he would do for his fellow members of the beat movement, and then he incorporated them uh, into this book. So, And that's the element that's missing from the film version of Naked Lunch, is the really sort of kind of naturalistic horror of heroin addiction juxtaposed with all of the science fiction and and fantasy uh, imagery. If you want uh, more accessible books, the stuff that he wrote in the 80s, which would be the Cities of the Red Knight, Place of Dead Roads, and the Western Lands, they're still not traditional narratives, but they are much easier to read than the stuff that came in the middle. And it's that stuff that's, um, you know, most accessible to steal uh, science fiction and, and fantasy and horror ideas from. And in the middle are a lot of uh, different titles like The Nova Mob and The Ticket That Exploded that were written using his cut-ups method in which he would cut up newspapers and magazines, anything with words in it, and then pull things at random and then connect them up together. And these are basically just sort of hallucinatory cascades of freaky images, many of them with explicit science fiction or fantasy content. Yeah, the ticket that exploded is, um, I, I read it basically, uh, you know, knowing not at all what to expect and discovering what it was. And it was, uh, and either I was young enough or I was, um, uh, you know, interested enough in that, that it, I, I sort of was able to be carried through it by the sort of, um, spy novel mank that that's sort of the arc of, of the of the novel i think that that i i was able to get into into that get into sort of get around at least the nova trilogy as a result of you know that you know having basically picked by good luck the ticket that exploded as my first full-on burrows to read and then the last words of dutch schultz which is a screenplay and so therefore you know it doesn't make any more sense than you know a lot of his other stuff but at least the format doesn't keep changing on you that it stays pretty much a screenplay and so you're able to sort of piece that together without a lot of you know uh formal problems along uh, to go with the subject matter problems and the and the or not problems subject matter problematicities and the and the uh and the and the imagery and and the and the wild shifts between reality and hyper reality and and, and unreality that, that sort of characterize, you know, pretty much everything he's written, even the more accessible stuff like the Red Knight trilogy, which, again, I've started the Cities of the Red Knight, I think, twice, because it's uh, uh, one of the books that introduced uh, the pirate utopia of Libertalia to a lot of, you know, today's techno-hippies. 
uh, but I have not yet gotten gotten into the part where uh, it, uh, it it grabs me and I finish it. And if you really want to dig into Burroughs, uh, it does help to know about his uh, life mm-hmm. and the lives of the people around him. And there are, uh, there's a really good biography of Burroughs that you can pick up, and his uh, letters and diaries have been published, so there's a, a lot of material on him. Are you talking about the Ted Morgan biography, or is there another Burroughs biography that you recommend? Whatever the newest, biggest biography is. It's, um... Well, the newest one, I think, is... There's one from, I don't know, the Ted Morgan, I think it says it's 1988, so that's not that new. That might be the one, though. Yeah. I think the Ted Morgan one. Speaking of William S. Burroughs' biography, talk about your magical opportunities for spy gaming. He apparently applied to join the OSS during World War II and was rejected. But can you imagine some... Uh, th- this is a Howard Waldrop story, obviously, waiting to happen, but where... Burroughs joins the OSS and, and you know, instead of, uh, you know, gets recruited to be Dulles's fair-haired boy. So he's, you know, running the CIA after Dulles or um, uh, is somehow, you know, it, I mean, just imagine an alternate spy history with William S. Burroughs. And he wouldn't be, you know, measurably stranger than a lot of the people that were actually in U.S. intelligence, which is part of the fun of it. And, um, you know, that he's like worried about mugwump moles inside the, the bureau or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be great. That, that's, I, I give that to, if Howard Waldrop is, is listening and God hopes he is, um, I give that to him. And if you're not Howard Waldrop, go ahead and, and see about writing it because Waldrop will take forever to do the research. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of sort of mythology surrounding the, the beats in general mm-hmm. and their uh, relationships to each other. And you can certainly go down a, you know, rabbit hole of biographies of, uh, minor figures who happen to know Kerouac and Ginsburg and, and Burroughs. Uh, Burroughs is certainly of all those figures the one who most intersects with the tropes of science fiction and uh, horror, although he's certainly never been considered part of that movement. He's never really been considered part of the mainstream literary canon. He's more kind of in the realm of outsider art, although he's certainly got a, a lot of plaudits from these sort of uh, rock and roll avant-garde side of literature, uh, particularly uh, later in his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, Burroughs is, in a lot of ways, he's sort of like, uh, talking about your alternate Burroughses, because as you mentioned, the Nova Trilogy has a lot of genre elements to it, there's spy elements to it, there's science fiction elements to it, that, you know, he and Philip K. Dick make kind of an interesting pairing, because Dick is obviously much more uh, connected to the science fiction mainstream, although even he is, is not really seen you know, as someone that we're all descended from, he's sort of a weird channel we went into for a while and then backed out slowly, you know, keeping our hands in sight the whole time. But there's a lot of commonality, I think, between Burroughs and Dick, both in terms of subject matter, you know, what is reality, what's looking at you, you know, what what is prose's job in, in terms of formalist uh, similarities. And then also, both of them had weird, crazy stuff happen to them, and, and they knew a lot of people, and they were uh, sort of centers of seminal groups of, of later writers and, and uh, poets and such. So I, I think that might be a good window. Yeah, Dick was writing in that sort of the, the pulp tradition and mm-hmm. trying to fold uh, his craziness into a saleable format where people are going to Mars and encountering intelligent slime molds. Mm-hmm. And in Burroughs, people are going to Mars and encountering intelligent slime molds, but it's uh, in a much more... Uh, avant-gardist frame of reference. And I think that that, you know, maybe if you're, if you're already a Philip K. Dick fan, maybe that will give you a, a leg up on, on entering the magical world of Burroughs. And the mythology of Burroughs is great too, as you mentioned that the whole, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in his life that you suspect are 
are there for the future Tim Powers novel about William S. Burroughs to, 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 to hang on to. So if you, if you look at him through that kind of a lens, that might also be interesting. You know, the sort of, what's he really up to when he's doing this? What does he, who does he really, what alien presence does he really meet in Tangier? If you just answer that question, uh, with whatever the big, the big bad is in your, um, uh, in your campaign, you can pretty much put Burroughs, you know, into Knights Black Agents if the Mugwumps are actually some sort of, um, uh, interstellar vampires or whatever that uh, drink many other things in addition to blood. Yeah, and all you have to do really is uh, open any page of uh, any of the mid-period cut-up novels or, in fact, even the, the three more narrative uh, final trilogy, the Red Knight trilogy, open them to a random page. You don't even need to read the rest of the book. You just keep going until you find a crazy image and then spin that out into an adventure premise and you'd be uh, well-stocked for... Many, many years. Yeah, it's certainly if you're playing any game that involves madness or surrealism or, like you say, dream imagery, any kind of weird imagery that shows up, that <laughs> using a cut-ups method on Burroughs is certainly a, a appropriate and rapid way to get uh, some great stuff. He comes pre-cut up? Yes, he's, he's like a children's meal at the restaurant. Uh, well, I think that sounds uh, like a summary if I ever heard one, so <laughs> it's uh, time to uh, sail onto some uh, dangerous waters. And those waters are the mysteriously calm waters of the Elliptony Hut, which uh, today has uh, taken to the sea to look at another story, which uh, I think we can use to obliquely reference the MH370 situation, and that is uh, the tale of the Marie Celeste. So here in the uh, floating Elliptony Hut, uh, Ken, do you want to tell us about the reality of this 1872 incident, or do you want to start off with the mythology and work backwards to the reality? I think we'll start with the reality, because the first thing to know is that it's n there is never a boat called the Marie Celeste. The boat was called the Mary Celeste. It was renamed the Marie Celeste by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in a short story called J. Habakkuk Jefferson's Statement, which is basically Doyle's attempt to explain the mystery. And Doyle being Doyle, that story being that story, the details from his story have overlain the actual mystery so much as to even erase the name of the ship. So if you're looking for a, a sort of emblematic piece of elliptony, I think the Mary Celeste is that. Because, you know, literally, you know, when they say, you know, uh, when the legend outlives the truth, print the legend. The legend killed the truth and drowned it in the Atlantic is what happened. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, <laughs> he he's uh, responsible for a lot of great things, and among them, the complete bollocksing up of the case of the Mary Celeste. Yeah, certainly the, the version of this that I learned as the truth in grade school is uh, Doyle's version, not the real version. <laughs> so the Mary Celeste is a boat that was, you know, built, I think, in, in Britain somewhere. It was built in Canada, actually. Built in Canada. Well, there you go. I, how, what a fool I was not to understand that it was CanCon week here at the Elliptony Hut. So it was built in Canada, and it, it left New York City with a cargo of raw alcohol, basically intended to dump into Italian wine. It sailed from Staten Island to Genoa, Italy. It uh, left in November of 1872. It carries uh, the captain, the crew of seven, the captain's wife, and uh, their little daughter. Briggs was a, was a, you know, a good captain. He, you know, sailed lots and lots of ships before. He, you know, not an amateur. Uh, the crew were all, you know, sort of, you know, good people. None of them were, you know, 
<laughs> oh, and also one of the crew was Jack the Ripper. That's not actually what happened. Um, the, uh, the, the ship sails off. Um, the weather is relatively calm, as you say, for December in the Atlantic. Although that's, you know, relatively calm for the December in the Atlantic does not necessarily mean as much. And it is discovered on uh, the 4th of December, 1872, of uh, a ship named the Dea Gratia sees the Mary Celeste sitting there empty. It's got no people on it. One of the lifeboats is missing. One of the lifeboats is missing. The other lifeboats are there. The captain's log is uh, there, but the rest of the ship's papers, it's sort of, you know, um, ship's manifest and things like that. They're not there. The compass had been destroyed, and the uh, sextant was missing. So that the theory would be that, some, that everyone got onto one of the lifeboats because they saw some disaster happening on the ship. They were, you know, took the navigational equipment on on with them to, you know, sail to wherever the, the closest island might be, uh, including the charts. And then they got swamped. Right. So they perhaps wrecked the compass trying to get it off right, whatever get it out, of, out of the, out of the ship. There was a rope tied to the to the ship, and the other end uh, was, you know, dangling off the sh- off the end of the ship in the water, and it had been chopped through or frayed open, and so that's the mystery. the um, uh, The cargo was there, with the exception of nine barrels of alcohol, which were empty. There was plenty of food and water. You know, personal effects were still on the ship. It, it didn't look like it had been abandoned, and once Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got a hold of it, it really didn't look like it was abandoned, because he added things like coffee was still boiling on the on, on the on the galley, and, and lots of other, um, uh, you know, sort of plangent details that, that bury the relatively, I don't want to say clear, but relatively uncontroversial truth of the matter. Right. He made it seem uh, not just that uh, the ship was suddenly evacuated, but basically that the inhabitants vanished. Right, which is the fun part. Yes. Uh, the, the Mary Celeste, there, there was a court of admiralty. They discovered what the investigator thought might be blood in the captain's cabin and an uncleaned cutlass, which is always a good sign. Um, he did not see any axes on board, which strikes me as odd. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they may have taken the axe off with them. I would have thought a ship like that would have carried more than one axe, but that's just me. Yeah, so they basically, the, the, the court said that the Mary Celeste was, uh, I think it was salvage. Was it salvage or was it given into the care of the owners? and just They, were rich, they, they did get a salvage payment, I think. Right, okay. So basically that's what happened. The ship was then resold to new captains who were terrible and uh, managed to wreck it pretty uh, convincingly in Haiti somewhere. Right, and that becomes part of a whole string where people have gone back to uh, the whole history of this ship and... Have uh, said that it's cursed because there was a whole string of problems associated with uh, the people who had the ships, where it was you know it was run aground at one point. But mm-hmm. uh, I think probably if you look at the history of uh, any 19th century sailing vessel, there would be a bunch of minor problems associated with it, and only sort of in uh, retrospect of this big incident would you go back and oh, it's a curse, as opposed to just it being you know, kind of snake bit in a, a mundane way. Although, um, uh, since it did drown the father of the owner, you could see why he sold it in a hurry. Yes. Um, whether it's cursed or not, he wouldn't want to keep that boat. And so that is the, is the relatively boring truth of the Mary Celeste, with the exception that we don't really know what happened to the crew. I think that the, the general theory is that either uh, the alcohol began to evaporate, and uh, they were all inhaling it and got, you know, messed up by uh, sort of this pure uh, alcohol spirits in air and panicked and um, uh, and, and caused uh, either some sort of 
alcohol flame in, on the ship, which miraculously didn't burn any of the uh, rigging, or that they were basically... Or, or blow up in the, the hatch. Right, or they, they, and that they were so, you know, goofed up by this alcohol fumes that they were not making intelligent decisions about the rest of their 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 course if they'd seen something that you know was was maybe they could have sailed through it but under the influence of all this alcohol spirits that they're inhaling they think oh no it's a much bigger storm we should all get in the lifeboat and, and sail away I, I don't know necessarily that we're ever going to know the the specific thing that may or may not have been wrong with the with the mary celeste that made them all get on the lifeboat and sail away and get swamped by a wave but i think that that's pretty much what happened to the guys on the mary celeste they were not necessarily um, teleported away in situ by aliens building a diorama. Right, and there's no uh, truth to the Doctor Who rumor from a uh, 60s episode that they were chased off by Daleks, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. um, so what is your uh, favorite sort of crazy conspiracy or uh, piece of uh, elliptonic-inspired fiction that arises from this uh, mystery, which turns out to be uh, not as excitingly mysterious as uh, Doyle wanted us to have it? I think my favorite piece of fiction inspired by it, besides, of course, Doyle's fiction, which is delightful and is also bananas. Um, just more, uh, the, the fiction's not bananas, the fiction's relatively stolid sea mystery fiction, but its effect on the later case was bananas. But I'm very fond of, I don't know if you've read Phileas Fogg's um, uh, The Other Log of Phileas Fogg, which is the alternate version of the uh, Around the World in 80 Days, in which Phileas Fogg... Is that Philip Jose Farmer? Uh, Philip Jose Farmer, yeah. Who did I say? Did uh, you Farmer? didn't say. Okay. It's a Philip Jose Farmer's novel, uh, Other Log of Phileas Fogg, in which Phileas Fogg is one of a conspiracy of aliens. Moriarty is on the other side of a conspiracy of aliens, and he teleports onto the Mary Celeste to fight Moriarty. The, his journey around the world is to lure Moriarty out, and so he teleports onto the Mary Celeste and he fights Moriarty, leaving all of the uh, specific evidence in the course of the fight, and then... You know, they both get off the Mary Celeste, I think, by teleporting. And so that's why the Mary Celeste is the way that it is. I, I, I just liked the sort of completely at random shoehorning of the Mary <laughs> Celeste into, in, into around the world in 80 days. I thought that, that that showed pluck and spirit on the part of, of uh, Mr. Farmer. Well, uh, shoehorning, I think, was the uh, uh, very essence of that particular uh, nexus of things that he was doing. Mm hmm. And what this points to, I think, in terms of uh, gaming and uh, other fiction plotting is just the allure of the whole abandoned ship mystery. And so that uh, this is something you, you can port into a variety of genres. The obvious one to do that is space opera, where your uh, crew in Ashen Stars is tasked to discover uh, why everybody aboard a particular ship disappeared. And then you can follow that mystery to... Uh, whatever strange solution that would be. And once you add quasi-mystical uh, space opera, science fiction-y things to it, there's uh, all sorts of uh, solutions to that mystery that can be uh, more exciting than being overcome by alcohol fumes and overturned in your life raft. You could mm -hmm. do that today with uh, a modern horror thing where you could find, uh, you know, a... a uh, craft a, a container ship maybe a freighter uh discovered with nobody on it and you have to figure out where the people went or perhaps just explore it to find out uh what they've turned into you can tie it also into the uh good old um cannibal rat ghost ship the lyubov orlova right that uh that briefly excited and thrilled the world when uh the the, the mirror did its job as only a cannibal rat ship can as only a cannibal rat ghost ship can of of um uh, breaking the story wide open um, that you you can take that sort of Mary Celeste 
uh, feel, or you take the uh, Lubov Orlova backward into the Mary Celeste. And so you could have, instead of the Mary Celeste, be found floating empty at sea. Uh, you could have the Demeter f- uh, found floating empty at sea, the, the, the Tsarina Catherine, either of the ships that, that Dracula is, is sailing on. Um, you, you can inspire other sort of lost ship mysteries with any of your given explanations for the, for the other lost ships. So there's, um, you can even have uh, the Bermuda Triangle can show up, obviously, UFOs, aliens, some sort of uh, boats of the Glen Carrig, sentient lobster pirate things um, can, can show up. Uh, it sails into or out of another dimension, and the people are all then you know plucked off and, and taken away. Uh, the notion of an island or, a, or the, sort of the, 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 the sort of bigger notion that the Bermuda Triangle has within it this Sargasso Sea where there's a bunch of lost shipwrecks and all the crews interact, and maybe there's a couple of islands in there. Um, and then they're all uh, pulled out of time. You could certainly say that uh, the protagonists of your of your uh, fantasy game or your dimension traveling game are going to be guys who are on the Mary Celeste, and you just sort of say, by an odd coincidence, this Danish uh, seaman began as a professor of Mayan languages or something before having to ship out. You don't necessarily want to stick too close to the um, to the original history, but the notion that you know the Mary Celeste also makes the standard uh, recruiting the characters phase of any sort of mysterious uh, teleporting time traveling type game where you've got a bunch of a small group of people and they're snatched uh, and, and they vanish off. It, it's uh, you know a smaller group than the uh, than the lost legions and it's a larger group than Ambrose Bierce so I think that it's kind of an ideal you know you're starting role-playing game party and maybe they're not on the Mary Celeste but maybe you take the inspiration from that boat and you have all of your guys and you say you're all guys who are on a boat in 1872. And when you vanish, it's covered up uh, by Arthur Conan Doyle. And that's what the true secret of the Mary Celeste is, is that it was the origin story of your campaign. <laughs> and if you're a fan of the Sargasso Sea, the uh, 13th Age adventure that I've been working on for Pelgrane that I was talking about earlier is actually uh, a fantasy version of the Sargasso Sea. So the main encounter occurs on a weed mat with uh, ships uh, stuck in it. And you're uh, trying to find something on this weed mat and uh, fight your way through all the... Uh, competing groups of uh, castaways. So uh, that's your uh, seaweed-oriented upcoming game project right there. Yeah, there's also a, uh, I give nothing away by saying that there is a Bermuda Triangle appearance coming up in Mythos Expeditions. That as you sail south to Bermuda, I'm pretty sure that every single player character knows what you're likely to run into then. Well, I think that we have sailed into the Sea of Plugs, which indicates that we have uh, once more successfully completed our own podcast voyage and are ready to uh, dock for another week. Open up one of those barrels of, of raw alcohol and get it going. Mmm, delicious raw alcohol. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Phoenix. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Maintain your habit by hitting the donate button at KenneRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or Mugwump extract by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Thank you.